Hey guys, it's your host Julian. This week I sit down with the composer for Courage the Cowardly Dog, Jody Gray. We chat about how Jody came to work on Courage with his composing partner, Andy Ezrin, creating the music and sound effects for Courage the Cowardly Dog, reminiscing about the late great Theo White, and so much more. This one was a lot of fun, and getting to hear the behind the scenes antics of one of my favorite shows as a kid was absolutely priceless. I hope you enjoy the episode, and happy Halloween. Jody Gray, man, composer of Courage, the Cowardly Dog. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Julian? Man, I've been looking for... Oh, great. Great is an understatement, man, because I've really been looking forward to this one because there's things from my childhood... <clears throat> excuse me as I get a little choked up. There's things from my childhood that I pull back. And, you know, I've said it so many times on this podcast, the fans are tired of hearing it, but there's nothing like a voice that you hear from your favorite voice actor, a sound you hear from your favorite band, a smell, a taste from your favorite food that can transport you back to your childhood. I can tell you where I was at the first time. Obviously, I was at home because I was a little kid, but I could tell you what it was like watching Courage the Cowardly Dog, that pilot for the first time, hearing the sounds that were coming out, hearing the music, hearing and seeing all these visual. It was just, it was overload in the best possible way when it came to visual stimuli, man. Uh, so obviously, ladies and gentlemen, like I said, Jody here did the, did the music score, so, fucking sound effects, everything for, for Courage the Cowardly Dog. And uh, I really got to know, man, how did you and Dilly get, connected or were you guys friends prior to courage or well um my co-writer on the project partner andy ezrin um knew uh this guy rob marcus who was mm -hmm. john's original producer john used to do before courage was greenlit you know he did a lot of stuff uh a lot of little indie things and uh some really really cool things um and uh John, uh, he was talking to John and John said, you know, I know these guys that are, this guy, Andy Ezrin, who's really, really good. Um, and Andy said, I don't know shit about scoring. I'm going to call Jody. So we both got together and we did this Noodles and Ned piece for John, which is kind of very Tom and Jerry, mm -hmm. no spoken stuff, you know, just wall to wall music. I had a, a lot of fun doing it. And then um, a little while passed and we got a call to come in and uh, demo up some stuff for this new TV show, Courage, the Cowardly Dog. Um, and that's totally exactly how it happened. We beat out a whole bunch of people, um, uh, which we were very amazed with. But one of the things I think that gave us like a, a shot was that we had worked with John already mm. and John is like very specific and particular and very non-specific mm. by that I mean he wants you to go to the ends of the earth to come up with something that's really cool and really unique you know like for instance in this noodles and dead thing there was a uh, an airplane right so uh one of the main focal points of that particular thing was Dilly, Ned, the character Ned, who's obviously John Dilworth, was riding this plane. And so we did this kind of ass backwards version of, um, you know, like a kind of a Star Wars thing or a Superman thing, kind of John Williams. Mm -hmm. And John said, no, 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 no. You got to do that with different instruments. I like that music. 
So we kind of switched out horns for some goofy synth and we just switched everything around and it became this utterly um, impossibly crazy version of John Williams flying theme. It didn't sound like John Williams, but it was obviously, um, uh, you know, inspired by that. So we did a bunch of stuff like that within that show. And when it came time to do something for Courage, the first thing that we were shown was um, a little piece of film, the beginning of Cat's Motel, when they go into the motel and Cat's rises up and there's that crazy sound, you know? And so we just said, what, what's the craziest, coolest, wackiest shit that we can do? Pay no attention, you know, to the history of cartoons just do something completely wild. And John was constantly, you know, um, wanting us to do cinematic stuff and stuff that was different. And so we won hands down. We beat out a lot of really serious guys at the time. And um, it continued like that. John and I became really good friends and um, I've done tons of other stuff with him as Andy has as well. You know, it was just, that was the leg up. It was like, we tried to match those images, those voices, mm-hmm. like everything that was um, cool and unique about Courage. We had to fit the music under, over, inside of that. And that's how it came about. It's a very cool story, man. And uh, there's there's two shows that I can, I can really call back to as a kid that the show isn't what it is without the music and the music isn't what it is without the show. I'm pretty sure I butchered the shit out of that, but no, that's good. I got it. <laughs> yeah, right. So you need both. And the, the one obviously is you guys courage, the cowardly dog. And the other one was running on Nickelodeon. It's my favorite Nickelodeon show of all time. And it was the composer for Jim Lang and Craig Bartlett, with a little show called Hey Arnold. Right. Yeah. There's, like I said, those, you, you guys' two shows, that and Hey Arnold. I mean, when I think of Courage and I think of Arnold, I think of the music just as much as I think of the characters, right? So if you take and subtract one of those from the other, just for me, it just, it, I don't think it would flow as well. And what I loved about you guys', you guys concept with, with all the music, and I'm very dumb when it comes to music. So if I say the wrong words, I apologize ahead of time. I it's all good. David. You're saying exactly what we thought, by the way. Yeah. So how we it, approached it. what's so crazy about it is like you see this and you look at these characters and David said something that I thought was so profound because when I asked him like what what do you think about when you think about courage he's like I dream in these colors I dream in the courage palette right so I don't know if it's the same for you when it comes to music you dream in courage as music but like I hear courage before I even hear courage talk man I'm hearing the, the 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 fucking the weird little guitar riffs or the weird little this the that and it's like man this fits so perfectly like everything nothing was out of place everything seemed like it had a point there was nothing strained there was nothing pushed there was nothing forced it felt like it was second nature it felt like this is what it was always supposed to be uh obviously with you you and you and andy doing this stuff i mean did it feel like that for you guys was it a was it like did you have to pull this stuff out or did it kind of come natural with the show for you I would think that it would be both, you know, some of the stuff um, we really had to, I wouldn't say struggle, but we really had to do like four or five times until we got it right. We knew when we got it right, but you know, like, here's the deal. We had five days 
to score that whole thing and mix it. And it was crazy. That's insane. And yeah, it was really nuts. So um, really we had three days because the last two days were mixing the music. Right. So um, when it came to a character it was like, what is this character? And Andy and I would kind of jam around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we would both sit in the room and I'd pick up a guitar, he'd pick, you know, he'd sit at a keyboard or vice versa, whatever we were doing. And um, try to come up with something that was really iconic for that character. You know, like um, it was melodic, but yet at the same time, it was really dark and kind of crazy, but um, it was always distinctive. We tried to make it like really distinctive, like that's what that character does. And for me, in all my, all my scoring life and subsequent scoring, you know, film and TV, um, it's always been like the, the, the old classic thing of leap motif, where the character has a motif, a musical motif. And you hear that, you know, it was like when I grew up, I listened to shit like Peter and the Wolf and stuff. And there would be like, you know, each instrument would be a character. And so we kind of like did the same kind of thing with courage. And um, some of the stuff was really crazy. And some of the stuff was just really beautiful and melodic and just gorgeous. And, you know, um, I get emails constantly from people saying, how did you do this? What's this? I love this. And it was really just Andy and I sitting in a room trying to get through it. You know, it was like, was sometimes it was like walking through cotton candy or something, trying to, you know, trying to get to the other side of the room, like, you know, but some of that stuff also was very inspired by John in the sense that he would come in similarly to the story I just told you about the John Williams thing, where he'd say, you can make that wackier, mm-hmm. you know, you can make that darker and more fucked up. You could, you know, and, um, so one piece in uh, particular where John drove me crazy, Andy had gone off on the road. And so I'm sitting in the room all by myself. And when we were doing the Tower of Dr. Jalost, which is a lot of fans' favorite episodes. And um, so John and my wife and John and his girlfriend all went to see this Carl Orff piece called Carmina Barana. I don't know if you know it, but it's a big, it's actually Hitler's favorite piece of music really? is what it is. Seriously, yeah. not, not to interject any politics, I'm not, you know, <laughs> but it was kind of like John stood over me, yeah. you know, and I'm writing this thing and he's punching me in the shoulder going, more Tiffany's, more horns. And he's going crazy. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to do it. And um, it was kind of like through intimidation we got through this score and um, obviously I spent a lot of time alone refining it and stuff, but he would come in and he would be a catalyst yeah. for stuff. You know, he'd say, go here, go there. Or sometimes he'd just say, that's perfect. Let's have dinner. Yeah. It would be, that would be like it. Right. Who's picking up that check. Yeah. He would never pick it up. God damn it. That bastard. <laughs> Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, it was, it had a lot to do with the intersection yeah. between John 
and um, Andy and I. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, what you said about David talking about, um, uh, you know, dreaming in colors, there was a very specific color palette to Courage, um, which was John's sensibility and also his girlfriend's sensibility. She did a lot of that stuff too. And um, John always said, I never worry about the music and I never worry about the color. Yeah. It's always going to be just what I want. You know, of course, I would be bleeding <laughs> by the time that five-day week was over and Andy would be on the floor lying in his own vomit. But we'd, <laughs> we would get it done, man. We would get it done. There's fans out here that listen to this that are animators. Somebody please animate Cody's hands bleeding and uh, Andy <laughs> laying in a pile of vomit crying. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty crazy. John, John and Andy used to do this thing where John would run in and jump on Andy and they would fight like long lost brothers, beating the crap out of each other. And then I'd have to go in there and separate them. And come on, we got work to do. Because otherwise they'd be rolling around on the carpet for hours. Anyway. Oh, that's awesome. Man. Uh, great work environment is what it sounded like. Uh, sounded like <laughs> it was fun. It was totally fun. Oh, that's what it sounds like, man. Uh, you can You can tell. I mean, I, I don't want to sound pretentious and say like you can tell whenever you want something that the people are having fun because there's been plenty of movies or television shows that I've had folks on from. And I was like, man, it seemed like you guys were having a lot of fun. And then they're like this, you know, while we're recording. And I'm like, look, man, I got to tell you, the place absolutely fucking sucked, man. The people were horrible. I was like, really? I couldn't tell. He's like, yeah, I wanted to hang myself on a regular basis. He was like, I hated going to work. Or she was like, I hated going to work. I was like, well, fuck, man. Uh, well, I feel like I'm, I'm a douchebag now because I, I said I could see it in the art because you can tell when somebody's happy at work. You can tell when somebody's, you know, enjoying something. But like I said, man, just with something like Courage, it just seemed like it was so wacky. It was so out there. It was so fun. You know, like I said, the music. Uh, keep it in on Andy for just a second, man, because I always find it interesting when there's two people. Obviously, animation is super collaborative, right? <clears throat> So you guys are, are bouncing things off of each other. But in your opinion, with you and Andy, does it help? Or was Courage the only thing you guys have worked together on? Or no, you, okay. no, we've done tons of stuff together. Okay, so when you we have- We just finished Scooby-Doo meets Courage the Cowardly Dog last year. We did that. Yeah, there that is, there's quite thing. a few questions about that one. Uh, I'm sure there are. Yeah, so when you when you have a collaborative partner, like you and Andy- do you find like it helps you more to have somebody that has the same like sensibility when it comes to music or does it work better if you guys are like opposites? Like he likes rock, you like hip hop or you like hip hop, he likes country. That's a, that's a really great question. I mean, both Andy and I are classically trained musicians. Mm -hmm. So that part of it is kind of like, we're kind of on an equal basis as far as, you know, um, Hey, play that C above what, you know, whatever. Um, but we're, um, Andy is a jazz freak. He's yeah. a jazz player. He's played with everybody. He's out on the road right now with Madeline Peru. He does, you know, tons of gigs and he's great. He called me one day from Sardinia and said, hey man, guess what? I'm in Sardinia, I'm playing with Sting. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, so we're different enough, but both of us have a real serious comic sensibility mm -hmm. so like there was a lot of fun like sometimes andy who who i would say is not more of a serious musician than i am but he would 
a couple of times, and I would probably do the same thing on the other side. He'd probably say the same thing where he would go, oh man, that's not musical enough. And I would say, it doesn't matter. This is just wacky. Let's just do this, you know? And um, other times, you know, see, we had this room, I had this studio. um, And within that studio, we had all kinds of crazy stuff. Like we bought a lot of these little toys, Casio keyboards, uh, all kinds of percussion instruments. Uh, Andy bought um, like, a harmonium, which is an ancient 19th century instrument, kind of like an organ that he brought back from Paris. And we would try different shit. One time, which was really fun. um, So in this episode, there were two episodes, Beaver Tail and uh, Conway the Contaminationist, where there was like really dark uh, sonic stuff. And in the Beaver's Tail, there was like this water that flooded nowhere and so we went into a studio and where there was a huge piano and the guy really ended up getting really pissed at us because we put like little metal things you know inside the piano which is kind of like what John Cage the composer would do and we would do stuff like Andy would put his feet down on the pedals and then I would hit the strings like this and it just it sounded like so unearthly and wacky you know and we used this in a lot of different contexts we created so many unique kind of tableaus and bits and pieces of music that um we would edit and fit together and do different things with it you know um uh like david lynch the director has this guy angelo battlemento who's his composer and Angelo would do this beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous music. And then he'd give it to David Lynch and he called the music firewood because David Lynch would fuck it all up. He'd do whatever he wanted to, you know, and then it would be inserted in the movie. And we kind of did the same thing to each, what are we going to do here? Let's do this. We, of course, use samples. We used electronic stuff. But the most fun stuff was when we played live instruments in the room. And sometimes we played instruments that we didn't know how to play. Like I played flute on a lot of stuff in Courage. I don't know how to play flute. So I go, it was like, what the hell is that sound? I don't know. So it was experimental and fun. And, you know, Andy and I would laugh and laugh. John would come in and he would say, that sucks or something. He would never say that, but he would... He would force us to do something else. You know, it was it was a constant thing. It was like a big sandbox, yeah. you know, and we just went crazy. And we were really lucky in that. Um, speaking of Linda Semensky, Linda Semensky um, was a big advocate of John mm-hmm. and she got John the gig, I, I guess. I don't know how it all worked out. But at the end of the day, um, you know, one of the things that John did, which was really cool, was he wanted to pay tribute to Linda for helping him out. So he had Muriel play sitar, which Linda Semensky played. Really? So that is Linda Semensky mm-hmm. in most of those sequences with Muriel. Like Andy and I use samples and stuff, but we had Linda go into a studio in Atlanta and just record a whole bunch of tuning up and playing different stuff. It was just so cool because she was good, but, you know, Muriel wasn't supposed to be that great. So 
Linda did this lovely stuff and it just worked. It was crazy. It was so much fun. That's, we got to use these sitar pieces for Linda. It's great. That's so awesome. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so glad that her name comes up. I've had, I've had the pleasure of actually that plushy plank is actually from Linda, the, the, the plank man. So it was really cool. Cause she sent me, she sent me a gift and she's like, I was cleaning out my, cleaning out my garage. And she's like, I found this, thought you might like it. And then as soon as I just peeked into the box, I knew exactly what it was. I'm like, Oh shit. I know what this is. And the, the coolest thing that she, she had sent was, wasn't the plushy plank. It was the fucking little card. She sent me a little thank you card. Uh, you know, it had Ed, Ed and Eddie on it. And then she sent me two of her business cards from the Atlanta days when she was over there uh, for Cartoon Network when it was still in the Turner Tower. And I was like, dude, this is like I sent her a picture. I was like, first off, you didn't have to do this. I, I'm so appreciative that you did this. But second off, these business cards are so cool. And she's like, I thought you might like those. And I was like, it really is because it's like a time capsule. It's, it's like, you know, people don't do business cards anymore. I mean, I still have them. Cause I go out and I mean, obviously I'm wearing a mat, my Orlando magic t-shirt. So I'm always wearing the same hat. That's fucking broken. Uh, you know, I've had the same hat. It's my favorite hat. I've had it for like four years. People have had to sew it together and put it back and stitch it. it I mean, it really looks like Frankenstein underneath here. Um, you know, so, uh, fuck man, I can't remember where I was going with this. This Oh, uh, t-shirts. Linda. Yeah. Linda, Linda and t-shirts. Uh, so, you know, I always have a cartoon t-shirt on somewhere out there. Right. So, all the time people come up to me and they're like, oh man, I love that t-shirt. I love that show. And they would talk to me about the show. And I was like, oh fuck, man, I, I'm supposed to be networking here. Here, take this card because if you like this shit, I was like, I talked to these people and these people are so cool because they, this was their job. This was their life. And they did all of this stuff, not only for a paycheck, but a lot of these folks did this because it was something they absolutely loved to do. And they brought us joy. So I was like, if you liked this show listen to this person's story on the on on, the, on my podcast and I, I i've i've you know this is why i'm bringing up uh, fucking business cards and shit but you know so it's like a dying medium but it's still relevant i mean i don't even know how many people yeah, actually yeah look a lot of people them. still use them they you know yeah. but they end up being digitized you know whatever but i still have some business cards i very rarely use them yeah. but every once in a while i do but you know it's talking about that time that was the golden classic time of cartoon network i mean you know, all of those shows um, were just, and also outside of Cartoon Network, you had Ren and Stimpy, you had all this stuff going on at the same time, yep. you know, SpongeBob and all, it was really a golden age. It really and is. it's really kind of, and Linda had, Linda J. Bastian, everybody at Cartoon Network were such advocates of John's, you know, um, we got to do, kind of whatever we wanted to do. I don't, I know that there were a couple of scripts that, you know, got the, you know, the thumbs down or whatever, and a couple of things here and there, but um, in, uh, what did we do? 104 episodes, I believe we had one note from the network to change one musical cue. That was it. Oh, man. Talk about a time to be alive. Like you're not the first person that said that. And I, I've had so many people on that have had direct contact with Linda and they all say the same thing, how great she is, how, how phenomenal she, there. I, I've said it multiple times on this podcast as well. If there were more people like her still at cartoon network, still at, you know, HBO and all these other things, we wouldn't have the access for animation that we're having right now. And the fact that we're still, at, 
you know, I, I brought it up so many times, so I apologize. But the fact that we're still having actors and actresses go on there that have not been relevant in any part of the last decade can go on to one of the biggest shows of the year for Hollywood, uh, for animation, you know, the Emmys, the Oscars and all this other shit and sit there and say how great this stuff is for kids, right? These, these actors and actresses, like I said, have not been fucking relevant in close to a decade, yet they can get on here and spout some bullshit below the belt thing about cartoons and animation. But the, the whole reason I bring that up is because if we had more folks like Linda at Cartoon Network, at Nickelodeon, at Disney, people that would trust in the creators, I've never... I've never hired somebody and then stood over their shoulder the entire time because I feel like there is an agreement. If I come to you, you're obviously very, very good at what you do because I wouldn't go to somebody that sucks, right? So if I'm going to pay you all of this money, I'm going to give you enough freedom to do whatever it is you have to do. If I have to reel you back in, you know, that's that's some something that might happen down the road, but I'm not going to sit over there and like, listen, Jody, you really should have hit that, I don't know, A key instead of the B key. I don't even know if there's a B key, Jody, if we're being honest. There is. Very dumb. Okay. Cool, man. So I'm winning already. Uh, we'll just have to edit that little post out right there. We'll fix that shit in post, as they say. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing, you know, um, think about it. Um, John was autonomous. They gave him a studio. I mean, you know, he went out and hired 25 or 30 people and they did everything in New York. Yeah. You know, they didn't move to LA or move to Atlanta, you know, it was all done in New York, you know? Yeah. yeah there were people that came by and, you know, a lot of back and forth. And there was a, there were, there was a producer who oversaw the whole thing, you know, uh, Winnie Chafee, who's really, really good. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, we were pretty autonomous. Yeah. Short of John saying, do this or do that. I mean, he was the executive producer, so he was in charge. But his encouragement was drive off a cliff. <laughs> go, go. I encourage you. Yeah. Pedal to the metal. Drive off that cliff, you know, and we did it. That's what's like I said, there's there's so many things that are echoed through all of my guests. It's the same thing that you'll never see another animation boom like it was in the 90s to the early 2000s because there was so much freedom. For a, for a society that preaches diversity, if you go and look at all three channels, three of the big channels, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, Disney, there's diversity in a sense of a cast of characters. But when you look at all of the shows, every single show looks exactly the same. Same animation yeah, style, yeah. same same joke, same this, same that. But when you go back and you look at the 90s for Cartoon Network, Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, Curtis Cowley Dog, Johnny Bravo, you know, I am I am Baboon, you know, you've got Billy and Mandy, you've got Codename Kids Next Door. Not one of those shows looked like another one of those shows. You know what That's I mean? True. There was there was true diversity back in the 90s, but everybody has this cookie cutter. Can I ask you, can we take one second break? Yeah. The beeper just went off over here and I think yeah. it's okay. So please continue. Yeah. You know, so it's just, when it comes to the shows of today, everything is cookie cutter. Everything is the same. You know, it's, I, I don't know what it is, but it's just, maybe it's just that like when you become an old guy and I'm not even that old, I just turned 33 a couple of weeks ago, but when you come older and you come set in your ways, you're like, my generation had the greatest X, Y, and Z. Your generation sucks. But there's a lot of stuff that I like from this, this, this newer generation of cartoons. It just seemed like for every one you know, hit show now, 
you've got 15 that are missing. And it seemed like back in the day, it was just everything was a hit that was going on Cartoon Network, you know? So it's, it's, it was a great time to be alive because of, like I said, folks like you, folks like Linda, folks like John. Um, and then hearing the same thing you guys said, you guys had freedom. You didn't have that overbearing, like knowing what I know now about animation and just the movie business, television business, the Hollywood business, if you will. And hearing the stories that I've heard, it's insane to think that they entrusted so many people. Just do you know, did you ever watch Ed, Ed and Eddie? Sure. Okay. So that entire crew I've had on from, from AKA studios, the guys, the guys and gals that drew it up there in Vancouver, up in Canada, uh, show created by Danny Antonucci, right? So I've had almost every single board artist and every single writer on um, from that series. And I've had to cut so many stories because they're like, Hey man, uh, the climate we're in right now, that's kind of frowned upon stories like that. So can you, can you cut that shit out? I was like, no problem, man. Absolutely. We can cut it out. But hearing what they would do on a day-to-day basis, like they would come up with stories and strip clubs. They would come up with um, you know, the, I think the Christmas special was, was birthed out of a strip club meeting, you know, every Friday they would all go to the strip club. If it was your birthday, everybody was buying you a lap dance. And he was like, you know, we did things our way. And she would, they were like, they would send Linda up or they would send an executive up and Danny would be like, fuck off, man, this is my show. We're doing it my way. And sometimes he would come out of his own pocket to pay for any kind of setbacks, you know, but just to know that they gave you guys so much freedom and, and they developed and had such hit shows, you figure if it's not broke, don't fix it, keep doing that. But it just seems like they're starting to tighten their grips because they think the first thing that should go is animation because it's for kids. That was a long winded way of saying, you know, this shit isn't just for kids, man. There's some real, some real good stuff that, that this put out, you know? What I would suggest is um, it's either, I think it's on the Disney channel or it's on, no, it's on Paramount plus. There's a film called The Author, Offer, O-F-F-E-R. So I don't have to say anything that you have to cut. The <laughs> Offer is the story of Al Ruddy mm-hmm. and how The Godfather was made. My favorite. And this is one of the great, you know, miniseries Oh, is that, the one that, is that the one that just released where they're doing, it's like five, I don't know if it's five or six episodes, but it's episodic. They're, it's I episodic. It's, it's like eight episodes in all. Okay. And it's on, it's on Paramount Plus. It's phenomenal. Oh, that's all I have to say. But it is really, despite the fact that some of it is a little exaggerated, mm-hmm. it's really, truly the story yeah. of, you know, the, the anguish that you have to go through dealing with executives, dealing with, you know, because look, at the end of the day, people's jobs are on the line. It's the same thing as a record business. You know, I used to do a lot of, you know, records at one time and stuff. And, um, you know, everybody, oh, this is so cool. No, there's, it's not free. You know, there's a lot of like stuff. People are paying money, Mm -hmm. you know, and um, they want uh, it their way whether it's wrong or not, you know, so it's different. It's difficult. Um, but there was an extraordinary hierarchy of folks at Cartoon Network, yes. you know, and all, you know, Nick, everything at that time, there was a, there was a great deal of freedom mm-hmm. and it's got to do with money. Now it's got to do with political correctness. It's got, you would be surprised what we can no longer say. Yeah. You know um, it's quite extraordinary. 
and if we do, if we talk off camera, I'll tell you. Oh, oh, now all the now all the kids are going to go nuts and say, uh, "Wait, what, what did he say?" Okay, yeah, man, it's it's one of those that's to be continued, or it's uh, we leave them wanting more, or whatever. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Use I'll your come back with a mask on. Yeah, and- <laughs> use your imagination, folks. Yes. Uh, some funny about the godfather i don't think the godfather's ever come up on this uh on this podcast at least not for me um i always wanted to be in the mafia when i was younger and here's <laughs> why before before we think oh this guy is a psychopath or a sociopath no uh my idea of what the mob was was in one of my grandfather's favorite movies of all time goodfellas I probably shouldn't have seen Goodfellas like the age of seven, six, seven, eight, somewhere around there, <laughs> um, you know, but I only saw that opening sequence, right? Ray Liotta, rest in peace, Ray Liotta, um, gone Always way Always wanted long. to be a gangster. That opening sequence, man, from the from the from the earliest time I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster, and it was going through the entire thing on why it was great being a gangster. You, you saw great food. I was like, they played games after dark, and nobody told them what to do. They got to drive their own cars. They got to dress nice. I was like, dude, I want to do that. So for the <laughs> longest time, I I wanted to be in the mafia. I was like, because they get to do whatever it is they want to do. They I love spaghetti. I love lasagna. I love all of this food. Right. So flash forward you know a couple years and uh, i'm not doing too great in elementary school middle school somewhere around there um and john Gotti's book i believe it was called teflon don his autobiography i think that's what it was called it was teflon don um it came out and i was like oh shit i wanted to i want to know more about the mafia right so i'm i hadn't seen godfather yet i was like i know i wanted to buy this book so i wanted to know more about this guy i kept seeing him in the news and shit so my mom takes us all to books a million and uh I think that store's closed down too. So rest in peace books a million. Um, but uh, she was like, all right, you can go get any book. And she's like, oh my God, my oldest son wants to read. So I knew it was definitely not for me because when I asked for help to find the book, the lady was like, well, where's your mother? I was like, oh, she's over there. She told me to get this book. It's for her. Right. So my brother and my, my younger brother and my younger sister have already got books. So I slide the book underneath their books. So my mom couldn't see it. So, you know, she's talking to the clerk, they're checking everything out and then they go. And then uh, we get into my mom's truck and my mom had this, it was a weird F one fifty type of truck, but it was the first one where they started having that back window that could come down and, you know, the back of the class in the middle of the class. Um, I think it was like a sports track is what it was called. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I'm sitting back there and I remember going, uh, you know, my mom's talking or whatever, and I'm reading the book. And I go, hey, mom, what's a Colombian necktie? And she was like, what the fuck? And she was like, what do you want to know about a Colombian necktie? I was like, well, it's in this book. I want to know what a Colombian necktie. I don't know what that is. Ladies and gentlemen, this is before Google. This is before Narcos came out on Netflix. Sure, sure. This is before all of YouTube and shit like that. You guys are so lucky and be blessed with right now. Um, so she was like, what the fuck are you reading? And I was like, well, the book you just got me. And she, she like, let me see the book. So I showed her. She's like, why the fuck did you buy this book? I'm like, well, you bought it. I, you told me I could have a book. You told me I could get any book I wanted. And she's like, well, yeah, but you're, you're kind of pushing it there with getting this stuff you're way too young for this and i was like all right well, what's a columbia necktie she's like you're too young so i never got the book back i don't think i've ever finished the book probably should go and buy it so i can read it i'm probably pretty sure it was horrible um don't come after me gambino crime family please um but anyways the only reason i tell you that story is because i want to be in the mafia when i was younger right so flash forward i've seen the good i've seen the good fellas i've seen godfather now and the godfather is completely blown away 13 years old i have never in my life seen a movie like that up until that point where it was 
It was a masterpiece. There was nothing off. And even at a young age, I knew how perfect this movie was, right? So I'm watching this movie and I'm like, oh my God. And I was like, man, I should learn Italian so I don't have to read the subtitles. I took <laughs> four years, Jody, of Italian in high school. <laughs> still, I could hear, I could understand it a little bit. I didn't have to read the subtitles. I can kind of get the context. And I got a chance to go to Italy when I was almost 18, 17, 18, because you did four years in a, in, a, in a foreign language. You could go on the foreign language trip. So I got to go over in Italy, experience this shit found out the first day you do not talk about the mafia over there you don't ask questions you don't do any of that i didn't think it was that serious but shit it was serious um but yeah so that was my long-winded way of saying man the godfather fuck what a great movie man perfect perfect movie it is perfect and which is why i think now after hearing you talk about this you really need to see the offer because um truth is stranger than fiction that's all i got to say well, I, it's funny because I remember seeing this trailer. I'm like, fuck, I got to remember this. And it's so crazy, like your turnaround and your memory for stuff that's coming out right now from TV shows to music, the turnaround, the news cycle, whatever you want to call it. It's just go, yeah. go, go, go. Absolutely. You know, it's hard to keep up. So I'm glad you brought it up. I've got it written down here, underlined twice and circled a couple of times. Um, but uh, getting it back to courage, man. Um we won't go too much deeper into courage because there's a lot of great fans questions that are t- articulate this topic a hell of a lot better than I can. Um, but what I do want to ask you before we get to some of these fans questions was uh, when you think of, when you think of cartoon network and we just started doing this because on October 1st, uh, we're going to release our Betty Cohen episode. Um, so that episode at the end of it is going to be bookended by all of these people that I had um, send in audio clips um, so I was like, what does Cartoon Network mean to you? Send me a 30 second audio clip. Um, and I was blown away by the, the response that I got. I've gotten people from four or five different countries now speaking in their native country. And I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping what they're saying is above board and they're not trying to, you know, gotcha. gather, you know, gather some folks, but getting to hear like what Cartoon Network meant to everybody was so damn cool but what i'd love to know man what does cartoon network mean to you and what does courage the cowardly dog specifically you know that one more importantly than cartoon network but what is well, courage both both of them are just extraordinary extraordinarily creative periods mm-hmm. and cartoon network was you know i didn't really deal directly with them i dealt with john and everyone in stretch films you know although i did deal with some folks at, at, at cartoon network but it was always amazed me. And I wish I could go back because I would do things differently because that was the first major television series that I was involved in. And I thought that was the way it was, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know until later that uh -uh, that's not the way it was. This is a very, very unique experience. And um, I loved working on courage I became, you know, close friends with a lot of people involved, uh, who I'm obviously still in friend, still friends with, and, um, you know, uh, I remember like a lot of conversations with John talking about, you know, wouldn't you like a dog like this? This is like the best dog in the world. Look at what he's doing now. You know, John would like look at it like he had nothing to do with it. You know, it would sit there, you know, stuff like the episode at the North Pole where Courage sews up the hole in the ozone layer. And it's kind of like, John was like, isn't that great? And, and John could be very histrionic. Yeah. 
You know, he's very like, oh, oh, that's so great. You know, he would go over the top. And um, it was an incredibly creative period. You know, I did several other, you know, Cartoon Network things at the time, you know, one-off episodes, a few, you know, some pilots and stuff. But Courage was very unique because it certainly wasn't a kid's show, Mm -hmm. like a normal, what, what they thought of it. And it was really one of the, there were a lot of other cartoon shows that had adult stuff in them. Yeah. You know, not like Courage, though. Courage dealt with issues in amusing ways. Um, you know, and I remember very much John reading a lot of stuff, like um, books on, I remember uh, one of the last episodes in the series, I guess it's the penultimate one, um, Perfect, where John had this book about perfection. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, making all kinds of notes in this that the the eventual the script would eventually come out of and he was really he was always trying to base stuff on something real yeah some of the some of the stuff was just silly and goofy and funny but you know he really thought about characters he really thought about the relationship you know i said hey hey john how come um you can't see uh, Muriel and Eustace's eyes behind the glasses says because they're spiritually blind. <laughs> That's so fucking deep, man. You know, yeah. and you know, and it's true. They never, you know, they never really knew what courage was doing for them. Yeah. Even Muriel, when she when she was he was saving her, she wasn't like all ebullient. Oh, I'm, thank you. You know, she was just like courage saved her. And yeah. Eustace was just such a freaking asshole you know it was like who cared but you know it was just really you know so john would every once in a while give me like these little keys to the kingdom you mm-hmm. know like this is what's going on here and sometimes he would explain sequences like one of the and i don't know if one of the one of the uh, people that put questions in is going to talk about this but in the very famous sequel in human habit trail where the, the gerbil is uh, chasing courage down the river and there's a choir. I don't know if anybody's said anything about that, but um, it was kind of like, we talked about, this is so cool. What can we do here that's really unique? And this was one of the times when Andy wasn't around. And um, so we kind of thought, wouldn't it be cool to suck out all of the sound design, except for the voices, and write a choir to it. Mm-hmm. So there's this choir and there's no sound of water. There's courage going help and this beautiful choir playing. And it's like, what is that? You know, and it was so effective. And I've had like hundreds of people write to me about this. How did you come up with that? I don't know, John and I just sat in a room and thought, what can we do that's different? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, it's just, it was so cool anyway. I got to imagine, man. And you brought her up. Uh, you know, we recently lost Thea White. Yeah. Not too long ago, man. Uh, and I love, I love being able to do this portion of the show when somebody's no longer here. You know, we did it with uh, James Avery, obviously Uncle Phil, and I uh, played the original Shredder in the 1987 TMNT show, uh, the first cartoon for the Ninja Turtles. Um, you know, we've done it with Tuck Tucker, a board artist for Nickelodeon. Um, so, and I, I believe David... I think she had already passed by the time David had came on. Uh, I believe so I believe, so. 
Yeah. So I, I believe, um, you know, he, he gave us, yes, it was because he told us the, his, she was like, your husband was a beetle, I think is what he said. Um, you know, so, but, uh, when you hear the name Thea white man, uh, do you have a story or an interaction you had with her? Um, well, that comes to mind? I have a couple of stories actually. Um, Thea and Andy white, who was the beetle, who's mm-hmm. the guy playing on love me do. Yeah because uh, George Martin didn't trust Ringo to play on it because Pete Best sucked. Um, <laughs> and Andy was a big deal. He played on Tom Jones, It's Not Unusual, a whole bunch of these, these 60s hits. And um, so Andy and Thea came by our studio several times and sat in the back. Andy wanted to watch, you know, modern recording techniques. And um, so they would sit there and Andy in his very thick Scottish accent would uh, ask questions. And we were you know, happy to have them there. And Thea was extremely funny, yeah. very smart, not Scottish, you know, <laughs> sent, you know, came from New Jersey or something. It sounded like she came from New Jersey. And um, so I, I met Theo several times in the studio, a couple of times when she was doing voiceovers because I would be in there doing some other stuff. And the last time I saw her was uh, after Andy had passed away and it was at the 25th anniversary of Courage or 20th anniversary, whatever it was, there was a cartoon ever gave us a big party. And I spent a lot of time with Thea. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, I snapped some photos and sent them to John and John used it in a eulogy for her, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that, you know, I wish it wasn't on my crappy phone, but that's all I had. So she was just really human and funny. And um, out of maybe everybody, uh, I think that she was, her humanity and her humor um, leaked through in her voice performances. And um, I always smiled because of interactions that I'd had with her. And, um, you know, she was um, just, I don't think she's replaceable as far as the Muriel character, you know? I mean, there's a guy called Jeff Berger or Berger who was Eustace in the the Scooby-Doo Courage thing. And he's really good, Yeah, you know? But um, uh, there was something about about her Muriel that was so natural. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was like, this woman is not Scott. You know, it's kind of like, she was like the Meryl Streep of Muriel's or something. You know, she could yeah. do all, she could do this accent flawlessly. And she could put, I, all I could say is put so much humanity into that character. It was great. And I remember kissing her goodbye at the party and I guess two years later, she passed. That was the last time I saw her. But um, Marty, apparently, because they're both night birds, Marty uh, spoke to her on the phone, like, almost every night. Yeah. You know, they had a, a, after they got, like, reacquainted when they were doing the Scooby-Doo thing. Yeah. Well, that's something sweet. You know, thank you for sharing those stories. And I know those stories are tough for you guys to share, but I feel like if there's anything we can do for somebody that was such a huge part in so many of our childhood, so many of our lives in your life as well, we immortalize them. You know, obviously that 
that character, that voice, her, she'll never go, you know, unforgotten. But, you know, I, I feel like it's something that I, just, I really enjoy doing that because I think it's something special that you guys shared. Um, and now that we get to share that as well as, as fans. Um, I don't know if I've ever, I don't know if I asked David this, but uh, was that why she picked the Scottish accent? It's because of Andy? Okay, no. There is a character called Muriel, who's a friend of John's, who's Scottish and lives in Scotland. Okay. And John based the character on his friend, Muriel, mm. in Scotland. Oh, man. I don't know if she's still alive. She was an older woman. Yeah. But um, I've seen pictures of her. She doesn't look anything like, you know, the rendering of Muriel. Mm. But um, I think that that was uh, the reason why. I'm, pr- I'm almost 100% sure yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that, you know, that's, that, that is out there um, as far as the, the origins of that character, but I don't know why I didn't think to ask. And when he's like, you know, thick Scottish accent, I was like, huh, I wonder if that was a nod to her husband. Um, but anyways, uh, before we rotate into fans questions, uh, there's a couple questions that I like to ask because uh, you know, fans get you for so long. I figure I can get you, get you a couple more questions. Sure. Here. Whatever you need. Uh, but uh, I'm enjoying it. It's all good. Thank you, man. I've, I've, like I said, I've been looking forward to this one for quite some time, and I'm glad you're on here. Um, but uh, your Mount Rushmore, and I actually forgot to give you this when we were doing a little pre-interview. I usually give these two questions to folks because uh, it's tripped up quite a few people. However, um, the one I always ask is your Mount Rushmore, right? Uh, this one's fun. So your Mount Rushmore of influence. So you get four people that have influenced you in your career. Uh, you know, since you're on the musical side, I would love to hear some four composers. That way I can write down four new people. But you get four plus one as an honorable mention. So you got to pick five people. So Jody, who is on your Mount Rushmore of inspiration? Number one, way up in the stratosphere is Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. You know, he wrote, he's, his first movie was Citizen Kane and his last movie was Taxi Driver. And everything in between was all oh, the really? Hitchcock films. I mean, oh, he, was, really? he was incredible. He invented a cinematic, a musical cinematic language like nobody else. Um, I would also say uh, I'm very, very enamored uh, as far as animation work is concerned, you know, Carl Stallings' work was extraordinary. All the Warner Brothers stuff. Um, and I would also say that Slash, you know, Scott Bradley, who did all the, the you know, the Tom and Jerry stuff, all those instruments, that, they're kind of on the same level. They're both absolutely brilliant. Um, I would also say a lot of people don't mention him, but his career is so long and storied and he's so brilliant still writing scores, John Williams yes. is pretty amazing. Um, I, I don't know if anybody knows how great, uh, maybe they will 50 years after. I know a lot of people worship his work, but you know, um, when you think of something like uh, Star Wars um, and then you listen to his score for uh, Catch Me If You Can, they're like from another planet. They're not even the same folks. You know, it's, he's really, really great. And um, I would also say as one of the inventors of uh, modern cinema way back then was Franz Waxman, who wrote 
the score to The Bride of Frankenstein, mm. which incredibly affected me. Yeah, it's just incredible. And um, I would say, last but not least, because he's not a composer, is the work of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, um, his work is crazy. Uh, you know, in fact my entire sort of thesis for film scoring, especially in things like Courage, I, also, I, I don't always get a chance to do that, but um, in A Clockwork Orange, there's a very famous scene where these hoodlums, I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but where these hoodlums are raping this woman and smashing her artwork and they're singing, singing in the rain yeah. while they're doing this. And it's the strangest juxtaposition of, you know, this one of the most famous musicals of all time from, you know, the first half of the century of the 20th century and um, this incredible violence that's going on. Yeah. And um, I did that a lot in Courage whenever I could. I would kind of score against mm -hmm. what's going on on screen. You know, if something was really dark and fucked up, Sometimes I do something like really silly. Andy and I would do something really silly. And um, as far as, uh, you know, contemporary folks are concerned, I really like the work of um, Alexander Desplat, mm -hmm. who's, I don't even know how he sleeps because he, he does like 20 scores a year or something. It's like crazy. You know, he did like The Shape of Water and Godzilla and it's just nuts. Yeah. I also have a feeling, and hopefully he won't shoot me, that um, the fantastic, what that fantastic Fox thing with George Clooney playing the Fox. There's a, a score that he did that sounds just like Courage. And if I get him alone in a room with like a pistol or something, I'm going to say, dude, did you copy our sensibility in that movie? The Mr. Fantastic, Mr. Fox, fantastic. I don't remember the name of them. But anyway, those are the ones that I really like. But Bernard Herrmann changed my life. Yeah. I mean, just psycho. He, he would be, you know, remembered. Mm -hmm. Just amazing. Amazing composer. Yeah, man. What a way to start your career and what a way to end your career. with those. Yeah, guys. Citizen Kane, Taxi Driver. It's that All of the Ray Harryhausen movies in between. All of those, the great Hitchcock movies. It's just crazy what it he really did. It really is, man. Um, <clears throat> Twilight Zones. It was his. Dude, he did tons I, of Twilight Zones. I love that show so much. So when when we were younger, my uh, my aunt Marion, my great aunt Marion, and my great uncle Bob, uh, rest in peace, Uncle Bob. Um, they would come down during the summer and they would watch us. Right, my mom was generally working two jobs. So during the summer, she would they would come down and watch us, and uh, you know, we're, we're fifth grade, and. Uh, they, they were from West Virginia, right? So it was a little bit cooler during the winter or the summertime, excuse me, up there than it is down here in Florida. They would come down and they would not want to go outside during, during the day. It was just so hot, right? And they're already really old folks anyways. They really shouldn't have been watching us, but they couldn't have been like some of the sweetest people I've, I've ever gotten the chance to be with. Um, but all they would do is they would watch the same shows every single day in the heat of the night. They would watch Walker, Texas Ranger, um, Murder, She Wrote, you know, anything on TV land, the A-Team. Right. So we would watch these, we would watch these movies every, or these TV shows every single day. 
with my great aunt Marianne and uh, my great uncle Bob. Um, what were we just talking about? Because I, I, I had Bernard two- Herman Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. Thank you. So I bet that that theory or that that show right there was one that I look back on. And my uncle Bob absolutely loved this show. It was one of his favorite shows. Was getting to watch the Twilight Zone. And when I was a little kid, I was like, man, this show is so dumb. I just want to watch cartoons, man. Why can't we watch? Why can't Uncle Bob like Courage the Cowardly Dog? Why, <laughs> why Bob? Why can't you do it? Um, you know. But it wasn't until probably during the pandemic. I think it went on to Netflix. They put the entire series of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just started going back and rewatching. I'm I'm sitting there. And I can I can remember my uncle Bob had this huge belly. Right, didn't drink, but he had a huge beer belly, and he wore his pants. Ladies and gentlemen, he was fucking 72, 73 back in the mid two thousands. Um, so, you know, he had his, 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 uh, pants all the way up and he's a big guy. He's about six foot four. He's a big guy. So he had his pants all the way above his belly button with his fucking belt strapped down. And I would just remember like he would sit on the couch and then we would all use his belly as a pillow, like me and my brothers and sisters and shit. So we just lay back and we would watch twilight zone, man. So I have this special place in my heart for the twilight zone. I just went back and recently rewatched the entire series. Phenomenal show, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you also want to know that that's one of John Dilworth's greatest influences. Really? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's been fun. So this next one is actually really cool uh, because you guys get to, there's a lot of folks that are into animation. There's a lot of folks that want to break into animation that listen to this podcast. Uh, so when we can help them out, I like to do this. Um, but usually I have an animator on and say what two books that every animation fan or anybody that's trying to break in animation should have on their shelves. But since we're going the composer route this week, uh, what are two books that you think you should absolutely have if you're a fan of music, or if you want to break into the music side of the animation business? Hmm. Very good question. Um, Because there's not a whole lot. Yeah. You know, Um, there truly is not a whole lot. And uh, you cannot get um, an education in, um, well, look, that's not true. You can go to UCLA film school or something and you can learn all those tricks and you can learn all that stuff and everything. But, um, you know, a book that... um, that really affected me that has nothing to do with animation, but does have to do with scoring and how somebody thought about it against Bernard Herrmann. There's um, a biography of his, not an autobiography called The Heart at Fire Center, Mm -hmm. which is all about him, what he did, how he did it, how he made choices. Um, And um, there is a book, which I may have, right at my fingertips. Yes. It's called Musique Fantastique. It goes from the beginning of the 20th century to 1982, like with John Carpenter's The Thing and stuff like that. It's really thick. And it's only supposed to be volume one. I've never seen two, three. I don't think he's ever finished it. Yeah. But um, this book is the greatest resource. A hundred years of fantasy, science fiction, and horror film, a historical appreciation and overview. That's what this is. It's really good. Beautiful. And it's both technical 
but not so technical that, you know, the layman can't enjoy it, but technical enough so that you have a lot of great um, descriptions of how movie scores are put together and how TV scores are put together. We put this, the scores of courage together in a very cinematic way, as I've said. And, um, you know, instead of like um, the Mickey Mouse kind of stuff, like there is some of that, but the reality is that we are going after like melodic effects and stuff that, that you would remember, stuff that would be iconic to yes. those characters. One last thing with that, because I, I had forgotten to mention this before. Um, even though we did reuse some cues, generally what happens is in a TV series, especially now, is you create a library. Mm -hmm. And within that library, you pull stuff out. Well, for Courage, we wrote pretty much a different theme for every single villain. That's insane. And sometimes we copied them, you know, from other stuff. Like there was some stuff from Demon in the Mattress that showed up later. But the reality was we, um, we didn't really care. We just, wanted to be, we just wanted it to be cool. You know, so it was extra work. And a lot, you know, it was very funny because I remember uh, Winnie Chafee, the producer of the show, later on, we had lunch together. She said, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, I was talking to this guy. I don't remember what company. And the guy said, oh, that music from Curse the Cowardly Dog, it's so great. How did you guys do that? And she said, they scored every episode. And he was like, huh? You know, because it's like people don't do that. Yeah. You know, you, you know, and I followed through with that. I, I have a show on Amazon now, which is a younger show called Space Racers. And I did the same thing. It was like I just used... Um, you know, there, there were some funny themes, like there's a school, uh, a, a head of the school board who, they're all anthropomorphic spaceships, but they're all named and looked like, look like birds. Mm -hmm. So the head of the school board is called Vulture, right? And he's really evil and nasty. He's always doing stupid stuff. So for that particular character, I wrote um, the alphabet song, Mozart, that, 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 in a minor key. So, you know, it's like really creepy and silly, but you're, you're always looking for what is this character? Oh, yeah, it's a schoolmaster. So let's put in something A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, you know. Anyway, so that was what was so crazy about Courage that we truly wrote. I don't know, we must have had like two, 3,000 cues in that show. It was huge. That is so insane. Uh, comparing that to what you do now, how many, how, how big of a difference is it as far as two to 3,000 cues to what you're doing now? Well, interestingly enough, this Space Racer show probably has like 2,800 cues. It's a similar kind of thing because what I might do now is um, there might be more repetition of stuff, yeah. but there's still a creative process of creating um, the original cues, you know, so uh, I don't get out of it that easily. I mean, once you set a standard, it's really mm. hard to go back. Absolutely, man. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You can learn from the 90s Cartoon Network. Uh, yeah, absolutely. 
And then this this last question before we return to the fans question. This is actually how we connected. This is the animation recommendation. Obviously, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is going to be a um, probably a consistent where uh, every Halloween. This is actually I should have said, hey, this is our Halloween episode right in the beginning, but I absolutely forgot. So, ladies and gentlemen, you're about halfway through this episode now. Uh, it's this is this is our Halloween episode. We're gonna it's gonna be coinciding with David's episode last year and Jody's is this year. Um, but like I said, this is the animation recommendation. This is where you get to say, hey, you should go out and say, hey, come on the show. Uh, so who should we reach out to? Um, obviously, like I said, David said, you got to have Jody on. He talked to you up quite a bit in the episode. And then after we got off the phone, he was like, Jody is a great guy. And he's really going to, he's good. He should be a good guest to come on. Um, so like I said, I'm glad you're on here and we're talking, man. But who would be your animation recommendation? When we talked early, I, you know, I, I said uh, reaching out for to Marty. I will reach out to Marty. There's also um, a guy called Paul Scheffler, mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, uh, I would, re- I, I could reach out to him. Uh, or give you a recommendation or interrupt uh, introduction. So yeah. Paul was pretty much every other freaking voice on the show. Yeah, he's a jack of all trades. He's the guy that did Doctor Vindaloo, the Indian doctor. He's the guy. It's impossible to know that it's him mm-hmm. because the same guy that did Doctor Vindaloo is the guy, the announcer at the beginning of the show. Lance Curtis and everything. It's the same guy. Really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he's the snowman. He's the snowman. And it was a joke because he was uh, doing Sean Connery. And um, John said, oh, let's use that voice as a snowman. (laughs) So Paul is like everywhere. He's really funny. I've worked with him on some other stuff. He's a really, really good guy. And um, he's really smart and funny. And, uh, you know, I could provide an introduction to you. Beautiful, man. Well, those have been the animation recommendations. Now, the uh, favorite part of my show uh, is getting to ask the fans questions because uh, you guys that write in, you guys and gals that write in, have some great questions. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this episode and our Betty Cohen episode, we are not going to be able to get to even half of the questions with as many as that came in. I mean, just on, on a quick count before I hit this, I was scrolling through just looking at the comment, the comment count. Uh, you had probably a solid 85, 86 comments, questions. Wow. I'll have to speak like really fast. <laughs> we'll get to as many as we can. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, but there was a shit ton. So if we don't ask yours next time. Um, but the first one, man, Pussy on the Chain Wax wants to know. This one's coming from Reddit. So they got some interesting names out there. <laughs> what do you think is the most haunting track created for the show? You got one that sticks out? Um, the one that's the most effective one for me, haunting anyone, is the Tower of Dr. Jalost. Yeah. I really, really like that, that score. It's very, very integrated into the show. Mm. Um, I'm using the same theme every time. And then at the end, it's very dark and screwed up. And then when Jalost turns um, to the Jedi side at the end, he's like, you know, um, it becomes very major. Uh, it's it, I like that score a lot, and a lot of um, uh, a lot of fans love that show. That show, they constantly writing me about that show. Yeah, like, how did you do it? <laughs> I sat at the keyboard and I played it. <laughs> The thousand hour rule, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. 
with John Gil- Dilworth standing on my head with a whip. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Uh, man, I, I, I'm surprised it's been this long and I haven't mentioned it, but uh, what was, was it Bushwick or was it just Schwick? The Schwick. Schwick, man. Schwick. That, hands down, other than, you know, Courage, the, you know, the main cast, Schwick is my favorite character in damn near anything. It's just like whenever I think of somebody getting mugged, I don't know what it is. Like if you go and give a speech, ladies and gentlemen, they tell you what, picture everybody in their their underwear so you don't feel scared, right? So whenever I think of like, oh man, I could have got mugged or somebody got mugged, I don't know what it is, but I always think of Schwick with a knife in, in, in the hotel bathroom. It's just, it's something about that scene that has stuck with me. And I, I don't do bugs like spiders, roaches, I don't do them. Uh, there's like two things I do not do in the house. I don't kill the spiders. I make somebody else do it because they just scare the shit out of me. But uh, vomit, I don't do that shit either. <laughs> but just, just in, like I said, anytime I think of somebody or anytime I think of like, man, this would be a funny meme or a funny gif. I'm looking for Schwick with a knife. Um, it's just something about that character. It's just so fucking fun, man. Um, but uh, Han... yeah, that's a cool show. I, I like that show. That score is very unique. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, Haunt. He's like Gershman. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no worries. Haunt stretched out, ladies and gentlemen. His name was Haunt. Uh, how was this one's an interesting question? How was the show explained to you? And what he means by that is courage uh, to create the compositions he did. Was he able to witness the show first before creating the compositions? Okay. So um, in the animation world, uh, because uh, it's like a factory even though you're slowing down within the time I had to do it, we got finished episodes. Mm -hmm. So they were in color, full color. And um, oftentimes, well, I would not say oftentimes, I would say sometimes we would get a script in advance um, and we would read through the script. If I had any questions, we'd talk to John. Sometimes John would explain something specific that he wanted before we even got the video, but we scored to what's called locked picture, the final picture, you know? So with the time code on the bottom and all that stuff, we went through the, we just went through it from left to right, you know, all 11 minutes of each episode and um, kind of did it on the fly. Yeah. So the ideas that came out were either generated by John, sometimes in a script, or Andy and I would just look at it and make it up out of thin air. Yeah. Oh, uh, where are we at here? Uh, oh, otherwise underscore sane. Uh, just wanted to tell you, he's like, the composition from the Hunchback episode was my favorite as a kid. Um some of these ladies and gentlemen, like I said, there were so many of them uh, that I had to take pictures of them. So uh, Joseph Porta123 wants to know, is his refrigerator running? <laughs> John question. <laughs> I don't know. I do remember that episode. It's very, very pretty. It's beautiful. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um. Uh, Dreyfus 2006 wants to know. Uh, I know there were other, uh, there were plans at one time to release the soundtrack for Curds at Cowley Dog. Why did those plans fall through? Uh, has there been any update on that? We're working on it. 
That's all I can say. Beautiful. Um, John and Andy and I have had some discussions about it. And um, I will send you an email when I know what's going to happen. Beautiful. Um, do, do you know Do you know Jim Lang by chance? I do not. No. Okay. So he was he uh, he was a composer for Hey Arnold. And if yeah, um, I know who he was. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. Um, so they had just released. Uh, I think they had they had went and pressed it like three times now. Um, but they had released the soundtrack for Hey Arnold, which is like I said, like you guys, synonymous with the show. Can't have yeah. one without the other. It's the peanut yeah. butter to their jelly, or the jelly to their peanut butter. Um, but they, I think they've had to press that record like three times now because every time it goes up, it sells out. I can't imagine as soon as Courage is going to go up, like I said, it's going to go crazy. I mean, we've oh, yeah. talked. John and I have talked about whether or not we want to have a like a a purple vinyl with black spots, and you know, and all kinds of like little things in there. John was talking about um, making individual drawings for every single, you know, just to do like cool stuff for fans. Um, For a very long time, I have something that I call the Courage Chronicles, which are like three or four paragraphs of how we created each show. Yeah. Musically, which would be in that package. Oh, that's going to be so cool once it releases. We'll let you know for sure. All right, and then uh, that there is a follow-up. He had uh, he or she had quite a quite a big one. Um, but is there any way at this point that a soundtrack could be released, or at least just the Tower of the Lost music? Uh, so they're a really big fan. I know they can't wait. So, ladies, everybody and loves that. Yes, there is, and I think that we're looking now at um, we're going to go on. Believe it or not, like the twenty-fifth anniversary of Courage or something, yeah. and so. Uh, but we don't have to release it on the 25th. If we get all the ducks in a row, we'll put Courage the Cowardly Dog almost 25 years or something like that. It will do oh, something like that. So cool. Or after 25 years, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hopefully it doesn't take that long. But Exactly. If- it won't take that long. I mean, I have all the music and, you know, we've talked about a lot of this stuff. I mean, COVID kind of screwed a lot of shit up with like, you know, because I used to hang out with John a lot where, you know, we haven't seen each other in a year or something, which yeah. reminds me, I got to even call. But yeah, we're working on it. Cool. Ladies and gentlemen, like you said, stay tuned. Um, or at CJ, I apologize for butchering you guys' names. Uh, the Cats theme, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but uh, the Cats theme is some pretty deep bass that doesn't really come across on standard TVs of the time. How often did you, uh, how often did you important or, oh, okay, how often did you or was it important to consider the technical limitations of a basic TV when writing music for the show? I think that's a very smart question. It's a very smart question. So here's what you need to know. At the time, Courage and all the other shows that you mentioned um, were broadcast. Cartoon Network broadcast in mono, Mm. not in stereo. So we mixed everything in stereo and beat the crap out of it and then listen to everything in mono to try to get the most robust thing that we could. I've listened to the DVDs, you know, on like my home TV with big speakers. It sounds pretty good. I mean, part of the problem is when you, excuse me, squish stereo to mono, stuff vaporizes essentially, you know? Um, So that's what the problem is. Should we be able to do this soundtrack thing we will probably remaster everything to make it a little bit more robust and also to be stereo. But the 
the current soundtrack does exist in stereo and it's really very very robust man like i said ladies and gentlemen stay tuned um what were your most important inspirations when creating the music do you have a couple that you that you go to um i would say first and foremost were the actors the dialogue we looked at courage. I talked about leaf motives before. We looked at courage like we were scoring an opera. So the dialogue, you know, like what do these voices sound like? What does Muriel sound like? What does Eustace sound like? You know, what do these characters all sound like? So the music that went under there, first and foremost, we wanted it to fit between the sound design yeah. or below the sound design and the dialogue and the vocals. So um, we spent a lot of time on that. And um, the, the next thing again was like, what did that, what did that scene evoke? What did that character evoke? What did they say to us? Mm -hmm. You know, you can name, uh, you know, 10 shows and I'll give you like how, did, how we came up with that particular theme. Yeah. You know, um, for instance, this will give you guys an example. So the snowman stuff. So I had this sample CD of um, Indian, American Indian, Native American, drums, all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff, little pieces of, of um, screaming, uh, Apaches, all kinds of stuff yeah. that we baked into the theme along with these really icy sort of sounds computer sounds and sounds on the synth and put them all together. So it was like, that was like the landscape because unless I started to play some kind of James Bond thing for Sean Connery, I couldn't do that. So yeah. we opted to make this crazy sort of Icelandic space um, that was very vast and windblown. And there was like, you know, and so like, that was what we used. It was like, okay, that fits great. John would come in. I love it. Next. Yeah. So everything was dictated by like what those scenes were and what those characters were. Beautiful. Thank you for breaking that down. Um, yeah. Well, we talked about that one a little bit, uh, man, there's a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people want to know about the soundtrack. Uh, this one's cool. Uh, What's the name of that really suspenseful music that would play whenever there was a disaster, like the tornado during Little Muriel? It kind of sounded like the kind of music you would hear in a disaster movie. Okay. Yes. The short answer is yes. <laughs> Basically, there was a, a kind of a sample of a, of a swirling wind kind of sound, okay? And within that sound, there, I would put some horns, Andy would put some horns, or da -da, da -da, you know, so it was kind of like um, a little bit of a take on the Wizard of Oz, but not really da -da 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 -da, no, no wicked witch thing. But essentially, it was a created sound, it was a created sound based on this wind stuff that was going around and around. And if I remember correctly, we also put it inside of um like a, a Leslie speaker for a Hammond organ that has that, those kind of, you know, 
swirly sounds. Everything in that thing was swirly. We stopped and started it. It was the same sound. And sometimes I use that in different shows, only I played it backwards. Yeah. So it'd be like, you know, in uh, A Thousand Years of Courage, for instance, we use the same sound. And then when they were uh, coming back into the 20th century, I would play it backwards because yeah. it would be the opposite of what happened in the front. Just like simple shit like that. That sound, you say it's simple, but that's so fucking smart. <laughs> it took a long time to put it together. I know. <laughs> um okay here we go uh what was your compositional process for balancing sounds that were whimsical and cartoonish with sounds that were darker and more serious do you think any instruments or sounds are inherently one or the other uh that's a really really smart question um i would say uh we change in cartoons you change sounds so often even though we didn't necessarily score this like a regular, you know, Warner Brothers cartoon or something, mm -hmm. um, you could start and stop on a dime. So there could be a really dark thing and then you would burst the bubble with something silly, yeah. you know? So it would be, again, what was the voice doing? What was um, the scene dictating, you know? And if the scene dictated that we go somewhere else, that we go to someplace really dark, we go somewhere really light. We just went there. You yeah. know, it was like there was no uh, hesitation. It was just like it's changing. The scene is changing. So we have to go with the scene. Gotcha. It's progression, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, stand beside Jordan. Uh, the first one isn't so much a question, but I just want to say last of the star makers is the most beautiful episode of curves the cowardly dog the soundtrack alone is very heartfelt and perfectly accompanies the feelings evoked by the story being told what was the inspiration for the song the man in gauze and king ramsey's curse it always made me laugh how painfully bad courage courage muriel and eustace thought it was haha <laughs> okay two completely different questions okay so star maker was absolutely 80 percent of that show was andy Andy like saw that thing and started to play that da, 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 da. and I was like dude that's it go so he he really wrote a bulk of that material and then you know we orchestrated it changed it up and did different things with it um, but it was like Andy's prowess as a keyboard player and he just had a, a you know a wonderful feeling for that thing it literally came out of nowhere he just started playing it and it was perfect. Um, as far as the man in gauze is concerned, that's a very funny question because so we got it. We had a, uh, you know, like an old school Victrola, like playing with the Edison thing and, you know, and they're all, and Eustace and Muriel are screaming and everything. And Andy said, and Andy and I said, what the hell is this? What kind of music would make them do that? So he said, well, we're going to do like really bad disco. And that's what's going to drive him crazy. So, like, we said, da, 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 da. So I start singing King Ramses, and Andy's going, man and goes, the man and goes. And then I'm like, he's no Santa Claus. And I use my, like, best faux opera voice. It was really bad. And uh, it's so funny how those little iconic, iconic things, you know, I, I did a thing at a, at a Comic-Con, and... Um, these kids came in and they had turned it into a ringtone and it was on their phone. And they like, like it was hilarious. 
I called up Warner Brothers and said, why isn't this shit a ringtone? What do you, you know? Anyway, it was, that was exactly what it was. It was like the worst thing we could think of was really bad disco. And that's what we did. Oh, man. Uh, ordinary underscore student wants to know. Um, shit, I think I got I'm it. sure you're not ordinary, sir. <laughs> Uh, big fan of your work in the series. Here are my questions. Um, how was the creative process that led you to, to compose the opening and ending theme of the series? Uh, are there any upcoming projects you are working on that you can talk about? Thank you for your work. Thank you. Okay, so the opening and closing thing was we fooled around with that a little bit. And because there was a voiceover already over the TV, welcome to Curse. I can't remember the exact thing. So we were like looking for how could we do something that would go with that voice? And see, that was the first thing we did. We, we did that right after we got the show and we didn't really know completely what the show was or what it was going to be about. So we had submitted a couple of things and John said, no, 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 no. These are Hicks. These are total hicks. So you got to do something that's really hicky. Hick that shit up. Yeah, but it's also got to be stupid. And it's also got to be scary. So the first thing was um, we got a a friend of ours um, to come in and play uh, pedal steel. You know, that theme is there. I'm like slamming through guitar and some ukulele and stuff. He was playing some ukulele. So we had that main theme. And then in the middle, Andy and I started to go, ho, 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 which we stole from the Wizard of Oz. Ho, do yo. So we went, ho, ho, ho. And that was the thing that was showing, um, you know, all of the stills of the monsters on the TV, you know. And um, so we added some really low stuff on that. And then at the end, um, it exploded, uh, and Andy went, Hello! I didn't even know what he said, but it ended cutting his thing in half, and John loved it. So we played the whole thing, and in, in, in the end, one, we came in and we played like two chords and started playing stuff over it. John came in and started to be a sheep. He's going, and all this stuff. And we were all doing these really stupid animal noises. And then at the very end, John put in stupid dog from Eustace. He said, oh, that's where it's got to go. It's really like we literally jammed it down. We just jammed it down. It was just having the melody to, to bounce off of with that played on a lap pedal steel guitar, gave it that little country thing. And so we gave John his hick thing. Oh, yeah. And also there was a, a juice harp in there. Like, so it was just a, an amalgam of stuff. And we sent it to Cartoon Network and they said, this is perfect. So it was an auspicious beginning. You should sell a T-shirt that says hick that shit up. And it's just John. I like that. I might do that. That's good. Yeah. Except I can't have courage on there because I get sued. But I'll ask John. Yeah, just put John in there and he's pointing like that. Just hick that yeah. shit up. <laughs> uh, Dominic DeSantis wants to know, uh, was Doc Gerbil's world, uh, Doc Gerbil's world purposely given a small world feel almost to get on the same level as it? Exactly right. 
Um, I mentioned that earlier in the show, but the C, so um, what happened was John came in on that and Andy, John and I made that together. So John said, Hey, let's do something like it's a small world after all. And, and I said, hey, we can't have a real song. It's got to be terrible, yeah. you know, like really stinky. So Andy and I started going, it's Doc Gerbil's world. It's Doc Gerbil's. Same shit over and over again, like a loop. And so I'm playing like bass and Andy's playing accordion. And we put tuba in there and all kinds of stuff. So that's John and Andy and I singing it's Doc Gerbil's world. That's exactly how it happened. And it was absolutely a rip on It's a Small World. Because there's all that shit in the background with deodorants and, you know, it was like going through the tunnel in Small World. There's two songs that uh, that I could really think about. And then it's just like, it's instantly, it's instantly going to be here for at least six to eight hours. It's a Small World. And then the Menomina song from the Sesame Street. It's just yeah. like any time. And if anything sounds like Menomina, it'll get right in here. I'm going to think about this fucking song for the next eight hours. Well, I'm trying to sleep, Jody. I'm sorry, this, man. Yeah, this song you is... You can blame this guy, DeSantis, who just asked that question. What a, what a dick. No, that was a, I like that question. It was fun. It was a great uh, question. Cosmic Comics Production, uh, they wanted to know, uh, do you hear specific music have a general idea of what you want in your head when you're shown a particular scene to score? Or do you try lots of ideas out and see what fits best with the tone of each scene? Thanks for all the inspiration. Thank you. Um, yes and no. It's both. Sometimes I immediately hear it. If I'm working you know, with Andy, sometimes he immediately hears it. Sometimes we hear it together. Sometimes we do a little bit of experimenting. Um, mm. A lot of times the experimenting is like, oh, you know, let's try this. Like, um, um, We'll pick up an instrument that we can't really play. Andy is a terrible guitar player, but he plays it really badly. And like I said, I don't really play flute or something, so I'll play flute. So, you know, we try to um, come up with stuff that's just stupid or scary. And it's also a lot of times we bust the balloon of scary. You know, like the scary thing will happen, then we'll go pop will do something else that just makes you laugh for a minute. Yeah. The whole idea is a series of contrasts. So we're always looking for like, how, again, it's the same thing. How can we serve the voice, the dialogue? How, what is this character? Who is this character? You know, um, uh, some, some shows, for instance, required a very sort of um, dark, non-musical stuff like for instance in um the queen of the black puddle uh she is um very scary she's a witch she's a witch but there's no um real music it's all darkness with little themes creeping in and out little things popping in and out little flutes little backwards things so we create these layers of stuff um, that would be just as iconic as a melody. Like you could know, oh, I know where that, what show that's in. There, there are fans that have said, oh, I know exactly what that is without even looking at it, you know? So sometimes it was just that dark, weird stuff that wasn't melodic, 
but still called attention to itself um, in the in a good way. Yeah. So it wasn't you know destroying the dialogue or you know. David and I discussed a lot of this stuff later on because we didn't work together at that time. You know, we just we knew each other, but we discussed, you know, how he said, dude, you guys were scoring my scripts like perfectly, and I never talked to you. You know, it was like, well, we just listened. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. That's awesome. Um this one I don't understand, uh, so maybe you might be able to to uh, to get what they're asking. But the Kevin Piastra, I think, uh, okay. wants to know what was a typical spotting session like with Dilworth. What's a spotting okay. session? Okay, it's a good question. So spotting is sitting down with the director or the producer or the music supervisor and deciding what spots in the movie or TV series need music. It's music. So they call it the spots. So it's a spotting session. So um, John would, and we would sit down um, often as the series progressed, he didn't spot with us anymore because he said, they know what they're doing. I don't know, you know. So he would come in and he'd say, you know, I kind of like this here. I kind of like the sound here. But he would always accompany by, oh, 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 this, this is going to be so, he was so, he was so excitable. He was so hilarious, you know, um, because he was so enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. And um, so he would say, I want something dark here. Or I want something funny here. Um, if he had an actual idea, like, you know, something from, you know, pop or classical or jazz or something, he'd say, oh, do that there, you know. Um, and then we would write notes and we would go ahead. We were still given latitude. He would often describe a feeling rather than a kind of music. Yeah. You know, he'd say, I want this to be like really dark, man, really dark. It's scary. Is that it's really scary. You know, like that for you. I beg your pardon. Is that easier for you when you know what kind of a feeling they're kind of trying? To um, it's like, yes and no. You know, I know composers like uh, who love to have like a temp score. Yeah. You know, like a temp because it gives them an idea of what the director or the producer want. Um, when you have when you have a close relationship with the producer or director, it's easier for me for him to come in and say, oh, I, I want this. Yeah. Even though sometimes it's um, very obscure. You try to figure out what the hell he's talking about, you know? And um, I would always go back to, John didn't speak in musical terms. He always spoke in, you know, feelings. And also one interesting thing about John too, uh, which sometimes uh, aided us and sometimes got in the way. He often didn't see the difference between music and sound effects, sound design. You know, it would be like, and we did a lot of sound design for the show that was music, you know, that was musical and oriented. But um, so he would, and during mix sessions, I mixed every episode with John and our mix engineer. And he and I would decide if a sequence was too crowded. So John would say, I hate to do it, Jody, but we got to take the music out here because I want the sound, you know, the sound effect. 
I'd say, okay, great. Other times he'd say, oh man, let's take the sound effect off. It wrecks the music. So, you know, it would be like whatever struck him. Yeah. So it would be the same thing, no matter what we did in those spotting sessions or subsequently, he would always have something to say in the final mix that would change stuff up. Yeah. And that's fine. Sometimes I would even have to score stuff or cut some something or move something from another sequence, you know, because he would say, oh, this would go better here. Great question, uh, Kevin. Um, and yes. Then, Thank you. Where we were at? I just fat fingered this thing. Um, and then this is the uh, last one. Uh, and I think this is a pretty good one to, to end on. Uh, have any of the songs that you have ever composed for the series ever influenced how an episode played out? Obviously, I think you said at the beginning of an episode uh, that you get them where they're ready to go. You got five days to get the music ready for this one. But if they ever come to you and say, hey, the way this goes might have you know, impacted a future episode? Yes. So these were, um, there was a, a bunch of songs that were built into the scripts. And these songs would be done before we scored anything sometimes six months before. So like, for instance, there's an episode, The Ride of the Valkyries. All of those songs were composed and recorded before the rest of the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, uh, they're done in a totally separate session and all that stuff. And also they animate the mouth movements to that, right? So it's the way animation works, right? that one, there was a, 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 a really goofy snowman song. There were a bunch of songs. Yeah, so, so it would, um, I would say the reverse is true. In the Ride of the Valkyries, John wanted this crazy sort of Wagnerian opera kind of vibe in the whole thing. So the vocals were recorded to a piano track, and then we filled the orchestration in around it. Um, other stuff was recorded the same way to a click track or whatever, and whoever was going to sing it would sing it, but it would be consistent with what the rest of the score was going to end up sounding like. Yeah. Beautiful. That, does that answer the question? I think so. I mean, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it does, man. Cause like you said, uh, they wanted to know if anything had done before. Uh, before the five days essentially so yeah man with that with that answer um, I think it would anyways I mean we didn't answer we didn't ask a lot of these questions that we had written down because you did a very good job at navigating I was having fun just sitting here listening to you talk man because you would navigate things and I was like well if I butt in here I'm going to sound really really dumb so hopefully he's going oh yep yep he's going to go into greater detail so this is really really cool I don't get to look as dumb as I usually do so it's okay you can't shut me up if I start talking sorry oh no man I I really I really enjoy uh, when I can sit back and I can listen to stories Um, because when you guys come on uh, I try to either read if you guys got blog posts or if you guys have gotten other interviews out there. Um, so I try to listen to and read as much as I can before. That way we don't kind of tread on the same water because that gets really boring. I mean, obviously, courage is always going to be brought up um, probably pretty quickly. I mean, you know, it, 
there's certain things that stick out. And when I find out like, oh shit, you worked on courage. We've got to talk about courage, you know, cause David had talked about, you know, you got him in the background right there, the big Clifford, the big red dog, you know? So it, it's just like courage is always going to be, in my opinion, like my favorite thing you ever did, because that was what I grew up on. That was where it, that, that, that height of, I guess, curiosity or whatever it is when you're becoming, you know, a kid to a teenager to an adult sure, sure. Transition period, it's the, that's what sticks to you the most. And when I think of courage, it's the same thing I think of when I think of, hang on, it's just synonymous. The cartoon couldn't go without the music and the music couldn't go out the cartoon. Thank you. And, you know, it's a very, it's a very iconic show. There's no offense or buts about it. And mm-hmm. what you're saying kind of makes me smile because John said, John has said to me on numerous occasions, you know, Jody, no matter what you do, it's going to say composer of Courage the Cowardly Dog on your grave. And I'm like, thanks a lot, John. <laughs> what happens if I save the Ukraine? You mean that's courage is more important than that? Give me a break. Anyway, he always says it's funny. Oh, it's, it's definitely going to be courage, man. Uh, it, it, it's- <laughs> He's a, he's a he's a funny character, man. Because I've heard some, I've heard some interesting stories about him, and and it's it's always this is the most I've ever heard about John as far as you know a clip goes. Because I think I think Linda and I have, have talked about him. I can't remember if it was on online uh, or if it was off the record, but I, I remember him coming up quite often. And I, I always I always smile because it's like you listen to him talk and you watch him talk, and you're like, man, this is an interesting cat. And then you hear the stories and like him running in there and beating the shit out of Andy or Andy running in there and beating the shit out of him. That that's some funny shit. <laughs> so he, they, it, they were like brothers from another mother. It was re- mother. It was really funny. And you know, John is very tall. Yeah. John's like six, five or something. He's really tall. And Andy, I'm short. Andy's taller than I am. So I guess if he had got me on the floor, I would be dead and you would, you've had half of the courage episodes, but um, yeah, John is a great character and a uh, very original character, brilliant, eccentric, eccentric. And, you know, um, as David and I have always talked, you know, um, John created a, the perfect machine for yeah. television. I mean, this, this courage show with the two protagonists, you know, and courage mural being, you know, the good guy and Eustace being the bad guy and all the other stuff. It's really amazing, mm-hmm. you know, that he created this thing that fit so many different, you know, I, I in some ways I wish it would come back in other ways. I mean, I don't know if you could ever go home again, you know, cause it was very special with all those people at yes. that time. But then again, they made like 37,000 star Wars, you know, movies. <laughs> so like, but you know, John John really did create something extraordinary, yeah. you know. And um, he had a great team of writers, brilliant team of writers, and um, brilliant animators, colorists. Everybody, we all really worked really hard to make the best show that we could. Yeah, and you guys, like I said, you guys made a phenomenal show. Um, <clears throat> uh, where can folks go to find you if they want to say, "Hey, Jody, I really like that thing you did." Uh, you got a website or anything like that? Or you got anything you're working At on? At the present moment, there's a website that's uh, kind of in disarray. Mm-hmm. They can go to jodygray.com, J-O-D-Y-G-R-A-Y.com. Or I have um, uh, a, a regular email, an old email that I, that I just use specifically for um, students and people inquiring about this, which mm-hmm. is Tunes for Food, mm-hmm. T-U-N-E-S, the number four 
F-O-O-D at AOL.com. That's how old it is. Um, and uh, so check that out. If mm -hmm. I'm happy to answer anything, you know, uh, please go ahead. Send me shit. Yeah, and those those links will be in the description below. So you can just go and click and then you can go and. Uh, Fine. And I apologize for the website right now. It's all being like revamped. Oh, no, but it's perfectly fine, man. And since, since right before we like to wrap up, man, I, I do have one more question. And it's something that I should ask David because, you know, he, he helped write the show. Um, but uh, I figure you're here. You're the next foremost expert on courage that I've had on. And uh, I got to imagine, man, you, you said AOL, old school, old school network there, old school email. Um, but uh, Courage was doing something before Google, I think, man. He was Googling before Googling was Googling. And yep. uh, I really feel like either John and everybody on that crew should be cut a, a little bit of a royalty check from old Microsoft here. How do you feel about that, man? Do you think you think that's just happenstance? Do you think the folks over at Google, they're like, man, this fucking dog, he's out here solving mysteries and shit in the middle of nowhere with the shittiest Internet. This is dial up days, ladies. And yeah, gentlemen. it was dial up days because you heard it. You heard this, the yeah. dial up sound. Literally in the um, middle of nowhere. They yeah. literally say that. They will. Um, Never give us a dime. Bastard. That's all I could say. They'll never give us a dime, no matter what we prove. But um, it was a very cool addition. Mm -hmm. I, do, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know if that was a contribution of David's or of John. I don't know. Yeah. I know that the computer was an incredibly important part mm -hmm. of, you know, Courage's hunt for shit that was, he needed answers to yeah. that he was able to interact with the computer in a lot of really cool ways and uh, yeah I don't remember another show at the time that was so kind of certainly not a dog that was that computer savvy you know I don't know I don't know that would be a question I should ask David I you know or, or you can email him or something because I don't know who came up with that idea that's kind of cool was dick too a computer he's a total dick, dick. <laughs> he's a total dick he's this british guy simon preble he's yeah. a really nice guy but he played the computer to the hills yeah man. yeah that's Very the ai you worry about right there that's the ai you worry about um but yeah man like i said this has been a real blast man we gotta have, have you Me and too. david come back on uh together and then you guys can talk and swap oh stuff. that'll be fabulous we'll you know we'll never shut up um, oh, that's perfectly. You know, cool. We're the dog. We're the dog composers. Clifford, Courage. All, you know, what can I say? <laughs> you got Scooby on the horizon. You gonna do Scooby Doo next? Well, I mean, you well, got we already did Scooby. Scooby we did the Scooby movie. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what's going on. There's some weird shit going on at Warner Brothers right now. Yeah. Where they're like um, canceling stuff left and right. I don't know what's going on. There's yeah, supposed to be another Scoob movie, but I think it got canceled. So. Yeah, I got. I don't it. know. Yeah, it's it's a it's definitely a hard time to be an animation fan. I mean, there's still quite a bit of animation getting made, but there's so many folks losing their job right now because of regime changes. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not an expert on any of this shit going on, but it, it's just it's very sad to see so many productions getting shut down and so many folks getting let go. They're either in the middle, almost done with something, just starting up and ramping up, and then they're asked to go home. Um, because the network doesn't have any value for what they are working on. Um, yeah, I, you know, it looks to me like from what I've read about Warner Brothers, though, I have no inside information, 
but from the stuff that's been released, it looks like maybe Warner Brothers is going for um, theatrical features and less for the television elements of what they've been doing. And, you know, that Scooby-Doo has had like two things a year out forever, you know? Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know, Scooby, the only Scooby-Doo that I've ever done was the Scooby-Doo Courage thing. And we got called for Courage because Jay Bastian, who's the head of, you know, uh, of uh, Warner Brothers Animation, we worked with him and he knew we would give courage, not short shrift. Although yeah. doing something that features both Scooby and courage was somewhat schizophrenic. We were trying to, you know, do Scooby, which is very specific and do courage, which is very specific yeah. and try to find a medium between those two things. And it was hard sometimes. Where does that one rank as far as difficulty for you? Um, it wasn't really difficult. It was just that um, when we did stuff that we might do for courage, it was oftentimes too dark mm-hmm. or too weird. We were encouraged to do weird stuff and we did it. And sometimes it didn't quite gla- it didn't quite work with Scooby as well. So we kind of had to find this medium between Courage and Scooby. And I think they did uh, a nice job of blending the animation styles. You know, it had a nice 2D thing. Mm -hmm. um, And you saw, you know, the original artwork from Courage and some of the original artwork Scooby. So I think it's, I, I can't say difficult. The only thing that was difficult was we did it during COVID. So Andy and I were not in the same room. You know, we were working on by computer all the time. We're working on Zoom. We're doing all, you know, so it was, we're used to being in the same room with each other. And that was like a little trying. Yeah. You know, and it was the same thing with the people at Warner Brothers. They were, you know, I was getting calls from the, from the producer in her kitchen and stuff. You know, it was like, I'm sure everybody went through that during COVID. You know, I teach, uh, you know, songwriting and, and stuff. And, uh, you know, I've been on Zoom since like 20, 2020 teaching. So it's a little weird. Yeah, it really is, man. I'm, I'm hoping one day we might be able to go back to some kind of normalcy. Um, but I hope so for your kids' sake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, luckily with Florida, it's the wild, wild west. So, um, you know, anything short of spitting in each other's mouths, it's pretty much open here in Florida. Um, yeah. You just look on the news and you got some wild shit going on in Florida. Um, but it's, it's, we've gotten very lucky. I mean, with the exception of, um, you know, it's come up a couple of times. So the fans know we lost my uh, father-in-law to, to, to complications from COVID back in February. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. It's, it's definitely been a tough time because it's, it's, um, he was a couple of weeks away from his 62nd birthday, man. And then, uh, you know, it's just way too young as it is way too nice of a guy i mean i've seen so many horrible people in my life that are still still walking around and i never wish death on anybody but it's just like why did it have to be probably the sweetest person i've ever met the guy that would literally give you the shirt off of his back uh you know it's just it 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 sucks man but you know with us being down here in florida it's just a lot of things have been open um you know 
it was very difficult to, at the beginning, like it was with most people in COVID, um, but, but my state didn't have it nearly as bad. We get criticized all the time for, oh, you did this wrong. You did this wrong. You did this wrong. Um, you know, it's hindsight is always 2020. Everybody wants to armchair quarterback at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, but it's just like, it could have been a lot worse is really what I'm getting at. Um, we got really lucky that it didn't get as bad as it was, or bad as it, bad as it could have been. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, I really hope that, you know, my kids get to, I don't know, get to grow up normal, man, because there's so much shit that's just restricted now because yeah. of it. And, yeah. Uh, you know, hopefully we can look at this, like, like they've been talking about, we would look at it one day, like maybe one day, this will just be the next flu, you know, it won't be so fucking politicized and yeah, I don't want to get that negative and that depressing, but. But yeah, yeah I, look, I agree. You know, uh, it was uh, in New York, it was kind of a nightmare because everybody's on top of each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it was really difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a, uh, I went for my bi yearly checkup, and the woman at the hospital told me uh, that at one time there were just bodies piled to the ceiling because they didn't have body bags. That's so, so like, like 30 feet high, you know, it's just awful. And, you know, so we're not going back there. And I think this one caught a lot of people with their pants down. Yeah. I just hope that, that uh, there is a degree of normalcy that comes back. It, it is coming back. There's no doubt about it, you know, but hopefully it won't be so crazy and restrictive the next time something comes along. Something would have been learned from this. That's all I can say. I really do, but I, I really feel like we are, we are not a proactive people. And by people, I mean just human beings in general. Very few of us are proactive. Everybody is very reactive. You know, it never, like nobody ever worries about anything until it knocks on your door. Right? That's true. You know, That's so true. like I said, hopefully we do not have short-term memory when it comes to any of this shit. Good, bad, and indifferent. There was so much shit we can learn from these last two years going on. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Like, you know, but uh I feel like let's let's not end it on such a depressing note. <laughs> but uh you da, know, da, 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 <laughs> let's do some Looney Tunes. Anyway. Quick, play us out, Jody. Uh but no, it's just uh like I said, this has been a real blast. David, thank you for setting this up. This has been uh it's been a real treat for me. Uh, hey, David. Happy Halloween, ladies and gentlemen. Um, happy Halloween. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And thank you uh to everybody out there that submitted questions. I hope. I answered them, and I hope that in the bulk of the interview, there were enough of them answered. And uh, please reach out to me. It may take me a day or two to get back, but reach out. Absolutely, man. And uh, he's been Jody. I've been Julian. This has been a What's My Head podcast, and it's been another piece of your childhood. Good night. Thanks, man. My guest next week is longtime Disney veteran Rick Farmelow. Enjoy the teaser. Um, this is a few years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, this young woman came to my table, and she was looking at my stuff and all my drawings and you know, signed stuff and do drawings for people and all my characters, and she's looking at them, and my wife, Christy's telling her, oh, this is Rick Farmel, and he did blah, 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 and she goes, I know, she goes, I know who he is. She goes, oh, yeah, I know who he is, and she goes, oh, okay, she goes, I think, she goes, I have some of his stuff on my wall at home cells or something like that she's like oh, okay so 
she comes to me and starts, and so I kind of start talking to her. And, she, and I said, yeah, I worked on Aladdin and I did a boo. I do, I animated a boo. And she goes, yeah, I know. We, yeah. She's like, just kind of stand. I'm kind of wondering, this is kind of a odd, she wasn't like, oh gosh, can you draw, do me a drawing? She wasn't doing that. She was just kind of listening to me. Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah, I know who you are. And then she says, well, she said, my dad was the genie. Wow. And at first, oh. at first it didn't register. I'm like, oh, oh, you mean your dad drew the genie? I was sort of thinking, and then I'm realizing, and she's, I'm like, but I know Eric's daughters and you're not one of Eric's. And I'm kind of, I'm saying, I'm like, oh my God, you're Robin's daughter. And she says, yeah, he was my dad. I'm like, oh my God. And what I had was that she was looking at it for such a long time was I did a drawing when he passed away. I was working at a studio and I just did a drawing of Abu with his hat off mm-hmm. and his head down and looking at the lamp that was open and empty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, it just said, bye genie. That's all it said. And I signed, you know, I just did it as a little tribute and I posted it on Facebook and dude, everybody somehow got a hold of it and they were sharing it all over. And I came in, I just around midnight, I put this thing just a little, that's all I did just a drawing of a boo with this thing and this yeah. little tear and it had gone viral, you know, overnight. And I came in the morning and people, Hey, I love your drawing of a boo. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, it's all over. It's on uh, Instagram and blah, everything. Anyway. But I had, so I did a color version of it, you know, mm-hmm. kind of really nice color version. And that's what she was looking at. And she was like, yeah, that's my dad. And I'm like, oh, my God, you got to let me sign this. He goes, no, it's okay. No, please. So I gave it to her and signed it. We got a picture together and stuff. But I just thought that was so sweet that she came by and, you know, just was very unassuming. But just sort of said, oh, yeah, I know who you are. And just looking at that drawing, little tribute drawing I did for her, you know, about her dad. 